0: Hey, welcome to On the Homefront. My name is John Murphy. Very happy to be here with you once again. You might be catching our show live here on WILI AM 1400 and 95.3 on the FM. We're also on YouTube now as part of the WILI channel, so our guests get a chance to get their stories out in a much wider audience as well beyond the live broadcast. The whole idea is to try to connect these two channels to give you as wide access as possible on all the devices anywhere you want right through WILI. So our program today will be in three segments. We're going to be focusing on an update from Putnam from the Cargill Tenants Union. We're going to talk again today with Katie Slininger. They're very active. They just went on strike in Putnam over the conditions in their housing complex, which has been under a great deal of stress and lead contamination and a lot of unresolved conflicts that have been building. Uh, So we're going to have Katie on to give an update of what they decided to do a few days ago. We'll talk about some local arts with the Swift Waters Artisans Cooperative right here in downtown Willimannock with uh, Pat Miller and Robin Ritz, talking about a unique economic model of cooperative partnership between people who co-own the space. They share the management and operation of a shared gallery throughout the year as a permanent way to share their work in the marketplace and try to kind of build their businesses. So we'll talk about Swift Waters for the second part of the show after the break. And right now to open, I'm very happy to have another conversation with Molly Rideout. Uh, she's the assistant director of the Assets for Artists program at Mass MassMoCA. She's been on several times in the past couple of years updating us on programs in our part of the state that are for training and business development for artists of all kinds. So a happy belated new year, Molly, and thanks for joining us once again.
1: It's always a pleasure to be on, John.
0: Well, you know, we have a lot to cover in the time that we have, and in the stuff I have, there's a couple of workshops coming up in particular. These are Zoom meetings that are very focused on specific topics. Maybe that's a good starting point for us.
1: Sure, yeah. We have two workshops that are coming up this spring um, that will be open to artists across Connecticut, but uh, with a focus on rural Connecticut, which, uh, as you may know, is all of Northwest Connecticut, at least by the USDA standards. Um, And so the first workshop will be happening in the end of February. And like you said, these are all happening on Zoom, so you can do them from the uh, pleasures of your own home. And at the end of February, on the 28th, we'll have a new workshop called Submitting to Literary Markets and Magazines. With poet and essayist Yasmin Amelie. And this workshop will be really for folks who have never submitted to literary journals or magazines and are interested in learning kind of what that process is like, um, what to expect, what might be some red flags to avoid. Um, and, you know, as, as a creative writer myself, I know that this is really important information to have. Um, what type of platform you're applying on, there's some different standards uh, to, to be aware of. And I'd say it is definitely for um, folks who are interested in the magazines and journals, and less so if you're interested in publishing a book, because that's a totally different process. Um, and so, yes, mean in this one will be focusing specifically on, you know, those more like regular magazines that come out that maybe they're exclusively for creative writing, maybe creative writing is mixed in, and it could be if you're writing fiction, poems, essays, any of those types of things.
0: You know, I wonder today with the new technology and easy distribution without the whole issue of physical paper and, you know, physical distribution through stores, uh, you know, as much as people like that, do you have a sense in this area of the writing marketplace that the online community is growing and the challenge for a new writer is finding the right match? Because it's overwhelming when you start to search, and you just wonder how many of these sites are really sustaining and maintaining in a kind of experimental time. Do you have any sense of the radar as a writer yourself?
1: Yeah, I would say that, you know, the the creative writing online world is, is vast, and it's great because it means that those experimental places can pop up. Um and I, I know that in this workshop Yasmin will cover some of the different databases that can help you find and like sort based on what type of work you do and not just genre but um you know maybe your work is more personal or maybe your work is more research based and you can kind of get a sense um of what type of work different places different places are looking at. I would say that, yeah, there's lots of emerging um, little online magazines out there, which is great. And, you know, to be able to have ones that are for very specific audiences, too, like a journal that focuses on motherhood or a journal that focuses on, um, you know, Asian American voices. Um, And so it's it's really possible to find something that that is a, a very close match to the type of work that you're doing.
0: I think that's one of the things that gives me optimism is that you don't have to reach everybody at the mass level to find a life experience that connects just enough people to make it work. And it keeps everything at a scale that's much more manageable, especially for new folks, right, starting out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say for myself, you know, the conversation I had was, you know, I'm I'm writing a certain kind of thing and who do I want to be the ones reading it and speaking personally for me it's important to have my local community reading it okay so how can I disseminate it to that community and uh, yes means workshop will kind of talk us through what are your goals for publishing you know and for that reason of trying to figure out who is your ideal audience okay then you can figure out how to reach that audience and what types of, of Journals or websites could could be that. And, you know, maybe it'll end up being that a magazine or a journal isn't the right fit for you. Maybe just putting something out on Facebook is equally, you know, equally important for whatever your goal is. Um, But it's really tailoring it to you as opposed to there's one right way to do everything.
0: That's a nice point you made. It depends on your goal and what your objectives are. And it's nice to even have options to play this way. It's a very recent phenomenon that people can really do it as an individuals. So that's really the cool part of the whole thing for me. Uh, yeah. Just want to mention in case you've joined us here on the radio, we're talking today to Molly Rideout from Assets for Artists at the Mass MoCA. And uh, the training, uh, the site that you want to go to uh, for information to follow up today is uh, Mass MoCA. Dot org slash workshops. And this way you can connect to these opportunities. There's things that are happening throughout the year. And there's one that I want to ask about briefly about people trying to make a living now and start to begin a small business and kind of let it grow and not be just a hobby or an avocation, but something sustainable. Can you talk about how people are doing that more and more?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, John. And I, I want to do a quick correction of the, the URL for folks. It's well, we are a program of Mass Mocha, The fastest way to get to those workshops will Assets be for our department's website, Yep, assetsforartists.org, slash go. workshops. Okay. And if you can't remember workshops, if you hit slash Connecticut, you get to see everything we do in Connecticut, and that will include the workshops. So okay. a couple different ways you can find us. But, yes, the second workshop that will also be online, um, and so you can call in from anywhere. It's not happening till the end of March, so you have a little bit of time to check your calendar mm-hmm. on March 28th. We're going to have another new workshop um, with Chelsea Gaia, who is an artist, but also a big expert on kind of downtown small business thinking, especially with kind of brick and mortars. But she is expanding that and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to build a sustainable creative business? And it's really for artists who have kind of been doing their work for a while and are now trying to figure out, okay, what's... what. When do I need to take that next kind of business step Um, and whether that's figuring out what type of business entity I might need? Do I need an LLC or is the sole proprietorship good for me? What do I need to be thinking about in terms of budgeting? Because I have all these different things, different sources of income from my work and I need to figure out cash flow across these different projects. And when one thing comes in to make sure that I, you know, have lined things up so that It's. I'm not having to pay something else before that first money comes in. Um, And I think it's going to be an excellent workshop. This one, as well as the other one, will both be three hours. Um, So you'll want to make sure that you're cozy and have some water with you to um, absorb all the the information that that we'll be sharing. Um, And I think it's especially good for someone who maybe isn't right at the very beginning of their practice, but has kind of figured out, a few pieces of where they want to go, and now needs to figure out the business piece behind all of that.
0: Right. Kind of a structure. Because uh, I know several artists that we've had on have talked about as they think about the assets they have as being a little limited to begin. Uh, if mm-hmm. you leverage those with partners and a collaborative of some kind, sometimes you can create a shared space and you can both do things. And that's something that is a different kind of business approach. But I know people are trying to start with little and not wait anymore, but start with something and partner up. I'm sure you've heard about that approach, right?
1: Yeah, and we actually have have a number of workshops that we've uh, hosted over the last few years that are about that kind of, like, coming together as a collective in some way, whether it's a formal cooperative model or whether it's a more informal sharing of either, you know, resources, one person's going to do the social media for all three of those artists and the other one's going to look for grants for them, um, you know, finding ways that we can play to our strengths without... All, all of us having to be good at everything.
0: Yeah, no, these are great opportunities. You know, looking at the schedule, I know in December you had one about cooperatives in the arts. So that's something that people are looking at more and more. Uh, Yeah. You know, while we have a few minutes left, though, Molly wanted to bring some good news here to localize a lot of this here to Eastern Connecticut State University with a new initiative starting very soon. And uh, I'll just let you give the good news and we'll give people a chance to get connected to this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so in Northeast Connecticut, we'll be um, in April, the very beginning of April, we'll be hosting an in-person workshop, which is the first one we've been hosting uh, in in Northeast Connecticut for many, many years because we were doing everything online with, um, with COVID. And so this will actually be in Wilmantic, and it will be an evening on a Friday and then all day on Saturday. And it's a program that some folks might actually be familiar with called Artists U!, like Artists University, uh, Artist U, and um, it's put on by a Philadelphia artist named Andrew Simonette, who is a uh, dancer and an author, uh, and also teaches this wonderful, wonderful workshop. Um, I actually took it 10 years ago um, when I was living in rural Iowa, and it totally changed my career and the way I thought about my writing. Um, so i to- I totally recommend it to folks, and the way you can register for this workshop, even though it's not till April, because right. it's a limited workshop and um, or a limited capacity, we can only accept you know maybe a dozen people. We're right. asking for folks to submit a form by February fifteenth um, so if you go to our our website, you can can do that. And this is going to be a workshop that really just thinks about what's important to you as an artist and how can you make your life thrive and your career kind of all the different components that you will need to be able to have kind of the perfect life or as close to the perfect life as you can get as a Mm -hmm. creative and recognizing that it will be very individualized. Each person's going to have different life goals and different ways to get there.
0: Right. It's a shared path. Everybody has their own dance, but you have resources and partners along the way. Yes, uh, absolutely. That's why it's great to share some time with Molly Rideout, again, from the Assets for Artists program as part of MASS MoCA. The the website, again, I won't massacre it this time, is assetsforartists.org slash workshops for all these and more opportunities throughout the year. And we've mentioned it before, and we'll talk about it next time that we get Molly on the phone. But if you go to the main website, too, you can sign up for a newsletter and information that they can send you throughout the year as these opportunities come up. They're always trying to reach people, and this is one way to help them with the good work. So, Molly, thanks for being here and for all the good work you folks are doing throughout the year.
1: It was a pleasure to be on, and I'm looking forward to being in Willimantic in a couple months.
0: You bet. As things get more clear, we'll have you back to give more information, and we'll let people know right away how to sign up
1: sounds great take care
0: take care of you too thank you molly okay that's great well we're doing uh, a three-part show again today we're going to be talking about the cargill tenants union in putnam for the third part of the show we're going to take a short break for a couple of messages and then we'll talk about the Swiftwater artisans cooperative right here in Willamanic. don't go away so it's pretty close right yeah right on good all right cool Yeah, she's always nice. Yeah. They do good programs. Yeah, you know, it's funny, she didn't get specific, but the last program they did here, I did when I was with Wyndham Arts. Oh, really? It was a training at Eastern on uh, how to get started with some arts, like business planning for artists. But that was many, many years ago, way before COVID. And now in the last couple of years, they're trying to do more out here mm-hmm. and not just in the western half of the state, right, which is right. good. Oh, yeah. yeah. oh yeah. So, all right. Well, this one will be a quick intro, and then we can just go with uh, the other one to the end, and I could do news, tell stories. I'll cry, whatever. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, this thing in Putnam, man, I think their article. 78 of 82 locations were above safety levels for lead. There were kids living there, families for a long time, everywhere. 78 out of 80 or almost like 95%. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Lobbies, hallways. Wow. Yeah. It was an old mill that they took, and they tried to uh, gentrify it making it to fancier places by the river there in Putnam. Real nice location, you know, very, very nice. Yeah. And uh, didn't do all the homework. And the company, of course, isn't local. Just like the one in Willimantic that we had Jay on. Yep. That company is, I think, in Jersey. Uh-huh. It's out of state, and they have a lot of these units. So it's like, go away, kid, you bother me. Yeah, right. Uh so how long is our break today by the way? Just, just another two minutes. Two minutes. All right. All right. So we got the the Theater Guild next week. Taste to Towns next week. Is that uh Amy Goo or Yeah. It's that uh it's that restaurant thing with Willem Manic and Mansfield. Yeah. For two weeks, they have all the wrestlers, Andy Goot and uh, maybe Chris McNamara or somebody from Willie, somebody from Mansfield, and they'll t- talk about the whole thing. Yeah, It'll be fun. It starts uh, in early February,
1: mm-hmm.
0: February 9th or something like fifth, something like that. So we're right on time. One minute left. Okay, I'll keep these on anyway. I'm just used to the sound. It's too late. <laughs> My ears are damaged. Okay, we're back live here on the home front on WILI. John Murphy, very happy to share a little bit of time with you each week here. Just want to mention that WILI Radio is a channel on YouTube, and the 5 o'clock shows all have playlists when you can catch the shows if you happen to miss the live broadcast, which is always fun to have you on board live. But if we have a guest on, the whole idea is, it's you know, for me it's about the guest. And if you can catch the show on YouTube on your phone anywhere you go, it's really great. And all the other programs are trying to do the same thing. Thing, So, you know, radio 95.3 FM, 1400 AM, and we're always happy to have you around. Uh, we have two more parts of the program today. We'll talk about the, uh, the tenant union in Putnam. They went on strike over some environmental issues. It's become a very challenging issue in the Quiet Corner. But that'll be the closing part of the show. Right now we're going to look at local artistic economics in the heart of downtown Willimannock. This is a conversation I had a while ago that I want to share again, a little shorter version. But it's about artists coming together in a common space. They own it together. They run it together. And it's a year-round outlet for artists to show their work and not just limit it to a few occasional art shows once in a while. So if you're looking to be more than just a hobbyist, this conversation could give you a new home. So we're gonna feature that conversation now with Pat Miller, uh, a founding member of Swift Waters from from many, many years ago, and a relatively recent member the last couple of years, Robin Ritz. And we're gonna start out with Pat talking about a little history of how Swift Waters began.
2: As John said, we got started about 20 years ago. And um, as uh, as a pop-up holiday shop up the street here, um, that was organized in large part by Jean Dismay. It was kind of an, an experiment to see what kind of interest there was locally in um, having a place for artists and artisans to sell their work. And of course, it's, it is not an easy thing selling your work. No. Um, so uh, it was wildly popular. People were actually lined out the door to get in to shop originally to get in to say, I want to be part of it, and then to get in to shop. So we evolved from there. We've been in a couple of different spots on Main Street. Mm -hmm. And um, the current one we've been in uh, around 10 years, I think, um, it was in the Wame building at 866 Main Street. Um, it's uh, between bank and Walnut for locals and yep. on this opposite side of the street from the uh, post office. Right. So we wanted to use a co-op, a cooperative model. And what that means is that the the members own the business. So the artists who participate in this pay a membership fee to join and then we do everything. We're the staff. We certainly show our work, uh, but we have no employees. It's it's us. We're there doing it, and kind of
0: um, like a sweat equity thing,
2: right? Indeed, exactly. indeed. And we we do the cleaning. We do we do everything. Um, so it's it, it was. We were helped along the way by the food co-op which is even older than we are, way older than we are, about twice as old. Uh, And they introduced us to co-op models and um, how to to do business that way. They were a real inspiration and very helpful to us. Our model is a a little different from theirs, but we want to make sure that people understand that you don't have to be a member of anything to come shop at the co-op. Uh, Swift Swiftwaters,
0: I know you you know like even after all there's your, you know, people still think that way that yeah. well I'm not a member, so I'm not welcome or right, I don't, right. that's really important and also you know the, uh, I think this is a good time to bring in Robin because she's been a member a couple of years now fairly new, although you've been doing your work I guess over twenty years with your art uh, what what was it that made you decide you wanted to join because you've been doing your own work for a while so what was the draw to become a member for you?
3: So I did want to be part of the artist community, and so it was my husband, Jose, that encouraged me to be brave about it. I think a lot of artists have a fear of being seen, yeah. and um, sure. it's, it's almost overwhelmingly paralyzing, but... I got to a point where there was no more wall space left in my own home. <laughs> it was cheaper than storage, <laughs> and so, Time but, it, yeah, yeah. So it was, I mean, you know, certainly his encouragement and just knowing that they had been in operation for so long that they right. were a true entity and something that I knew I'd be proud to be yep. a part of. And so it was easy once I got up the courage to do it that I wanted to be a part of it. Right.
0: Yeah. We know during the year we have many people coming out from different arts councils or guilds and the members may have a couple of shows a year and they don't have that many opportunities to show. So like a co-op is another way to connect your home studio to a marketplace that's there all the time, not just for a weekend, inside, not outside. And you can help pay for it and save money by being part of it. And I guess that's part of the challenge is getting people to realize how simple it is, not how complicated.
2: Right. Right? It is simple. Yes. Yep. We pay a membership fee Mm -hmm. um, to join. um, And then we each pay a monthly fee. uh, And we each work eight hours a month or the equivalent. Um, and that means that we can reduce the amount of commission that that the shop takes for work. Because ordinarily, at this point, um, most galleries or other places that sell artists' work charge between forty and fifty percent. Ordinarily, is that pretty for, common these for days? For commission, yes. So, so
0: you have to realize, you know, these places where you go, half of that revenue is going to the place that's hosting the event, kind of thing. Maybe it's a fundraiser sometimes, but that's the gallery business.
2: Exactly, right? yeah. and you know, they they have expenses, and sure. we have expenses, so um, we we pay rent to Wayne for the space, um, and we need to cover all of that sort of thing. So um, it's a it's a it's a good way to have. Uh, to be able to sell your work and to do it with other artists. You know, it becomes an artist's community. Um, And we have a wide range of things for... We we say, we make beautiful things for you, and we really do. (laughs) All kinds of beautiful things, from uh, pottery, jewelry, uh, wood, wood, Wooden things like pull toys and rocking horses for kids. We have books, we have prints, we have a lot of fabric uh, pieces, weaving and knitting, uh, and much more than that. So we are really uh, encouraging people to come in and have a look.
0: And you know, one thing I wanted to ask Robin, too, we have a few more minutes, by the way. If you're listening to us in the radio, we're speaking today with Pat Miller and Robin Ritz about the Swiftwater Artisans Co-op. Tell us about your work in multimedia a little bit in terms of the work you do that you have at the gallery. And also, you're a musician. We'll have you back later in the winter as Robin is a vocalist in the band Thankful Soul Revival, and they play in the region. We'll have you back sometime right. about that.
3: Thank you. But we'll
0: talk us you know, about how you're trying to connect your art with this great effort.
3: Absolutely. So, my artwork is inspired by nature, uh, it was inspired by a throwaway society. And so it started really, I'm a bit of a pack rat, but beachcombing and realizing there was more spark plugs on the beach than shells some days, right? And so I would gather these found objects and feel an obligation to do something with them and store them and catalog them away. And so I was inspired by Gaudí's work. Antonio Gaudí is a Mm -hmm. Spanish artist that did a lot of work with recycles and ceramics and glass. Um, So I started exploring Stained glass. I started exploring um, just different ways of combining thrown away objects with natural objects to create an awareness of your litter is impacting our environment and bringing attention to the nature around us and also giving people a way to connect with nature. Where I find acorns all the time, but how many people walk by and would never acknowledge or recognize it? Or who lives in a city that couldn't have it in their own? Right. Presence. So, giving people artwork that allows them to create a connection with something greater than them—in the natural sense and a spiritual sense—and um, it's it's almost like a compulsive creativity where I'll find an object, I'll find a shell, and I know it is a butterfly wing, or right. I'll find you know. So, it's it's an intuitive process too for me that allows me to honor uh, honor creativity in a way that's really just to create connections for others to feel. They're gonna interpret it on their own, but I think it is important as an artist to at least highlight something that's important to me, which is our connection with nature and the environment and its well-being and balance.
0: So uh, when your idea takes a form, does it end up sometimes as a wall hanging? Yeah. Is it an object that sits somewhere that people can have <laughs> as an object? What forms do you use? Yes, yes, around. yes
3: and All yes. yes. Yeah, bugs. you can come down to the gallery and see it's pretty eclectic. Uh-huh. So there's there's window pieces, there's wall hangings. I've got a series of greeting cards and cards, um, okay. witch bells, uh, door hangers meditation boxes, discovery boxes. It's that There's a lot of different ways that I'm repurposing old boxes or crates or papers. And, um, and so it is very broad spectrum as far as what, what I'm coming up with. Right. Um, but a lot of it is just commonly discarded items like jars or boxes or things that people really take for granted that we're throwing it away mm-hmm. into an environment that then has to live with it, right?
2: Okay.
3: Yeah,
2: and, and it's, it's a, wonderful work that she does. It's, oh yeah. it's very creative and uh, appealing. Thank yes. you, yeah, thank you.
0: So I want to mention a website. If you want to find out more about Swift Waters, how to join and maybe participate, or just go and check it out, all the information's there, swiftwaters.org. So it's a real simple one, swiftwaters.org. Now, when someone like Robin joins, because when you go to the store, every nook and cranny has stuff. It's amazing. Everywhere you go, different levels. You walk around. How do you divvy it up in terms of how much space? Some people need we vertical need, space, right? Some yeah. people need like a nice
2: tabletop. So how do you do that? Well, we try to give everybody an equivalent amount of space, and some people, some people's work requires a bit more. Um, um, but we do have a variety of things to use: uh, uh-huh. shelves, cases. Uh, Tables, walls, floors. (laughs) That's true. We use every bit.
0: Hanging from the ceiling in some cases. Hanging
2: from the ceiling, yes. Robin hangs from the ceiling
3: sometimes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was uh, Pat Miller and Robin Ritz from the Swiftwater Artisans Cooperative. And uh, I wish them well for the coming year. We'll have them back in the springtime as well. It's a good place to go. Keep the money local. Support your local arts. Okay, well, our next segment today in the program continues our coverage of the situations across the state with tenants and problems with landlords or local support from their town and the whole issue of safety and health and wellness and facilities. And last week we had uh, Jay from the... uh, The Wyndham Mills Tenant Union, along with Luke from the Connecticut Unions, I'm sorry, the Connecticut Tenants Union, I should say. And there's things popping up all over the state. And beginning last fall, there was a process that started in Putnam at the Cargill Mills. And it's become very serious uh, with the tenants having real fears for their health. And there were major tests that were done. And the results came in. And there's some breaking news that's actually come up in the last couple of weeks. So on the phone right now, I'm very happy to have a conversation again with Katie Slininger. And she's from the Cargill Tenants Union. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Thanks for joining us again, Katie. Thanks so much for
4: having me
0: you bet so since our last conversation maybe give us an update of what the union finally decided after much debate
4: sure yeah i think we were still waiting on some wet inspections the last time we spoke um our tenant union had organized and pressured um the department of housing to release funds um to finish kind of a comprehensive sweep throughout the entire apartment complex and inspect every unit there's 82 Um, residential units, and every common area again, even though they had been inspected and abated earlier last year.
2: Right.
4: Um, And so we only got those results right before Thanksgiving, and it was a pretty shocking document. Um, They tested 71 out of the 82 units. Um, The remainder of them were ones like mine that had been tested and abated earlier last year. But anyway, 60, 68 out of 71 units tested had either toxic levels of lead dust or um, exposed and defective lead paint. Um, and again, like I had kind of mentioned last time, but this is a new redevelopment more or less. It's only been open to residents for less than four years. So lead paint is something that should have been taken care of, you know, during the construction and the redevelopment project. Um, so that in and of itself was very shocking. Um, although we had we kind of had a our own, you know, inkling that, that was it was as widespread as that because um, you know, we had every unit that had been tested up until that point, um, it had been less than ten, but every one had lead in it. So it just pointed to a larger problem. Um, but anyway, on top of the lead we've been dealing with major, major structural issues from especially from water damage like, disintegrating bricks um, in people's um, apartments, uh, masonry and, and plaster crumbling from the walls, yeah. um, mold from that moisture. Um, and that's, all that moisture is, like, in the bones of the building um, because it's not active leaking. It's, like, rotting wood that kind of makes its way into someone's apartment. Um, and so anyway, <clears throat> with all of these issues and more... Um, We had gone through the housing court trying to get them resolved through there, but their jurisdiction is very narrow um, and usually is in most states. But um, our local one kind of threw out cases, even though we had very strong um, logic to our concerns that were then proven correct. But anyway, we lost a lot of faith in kind of the process that's been um, set up for us. Um, not least of which because in our region, the northeast corner of the state, um, the Northeast District Department of Health, our regional health department, has been really failing throughout the year, um, and lots of towns have lost confidence in in them and um, decided to withdraw from the board. So we were kind of left in this wild west of, you know, no accountability or regulation being enforced. That's right. And so... Um, as a tenant union, we decided to go on rent strike outside of the housing court, which is what we would call a wildcat rent strike. Um, so we're, you know, going. We're not using the established legal process, which kind of failed us. We are withholding our rent ourselves, um, and we're going to add. We're starting off with a dozen tenants, um, and then we're going to add more each month um, if uh, demands aren't met. You know, according to the timeline that we gave our management company and landlord.
0: Well, I really appreciate you coming on in the middle of this closure because we first Mm -hmm. talked at the end of the summer, and I have something that uh, you folks put out in September. And it was like an initial time when you tried to get a rally to get people more aware. And Mm -hmm. something that hit me hard when I read it again this afternoon to prepare for today, your goals back in September, the big goals were to pressure the county and the town to address health and safety hazards to raise awareness of the systematic neglect and displacement related to the issues and then to invite, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, the tenants to join the union. Now, you mentioned this is four years old. Now, how many years have people been abating lead across the nation? And I just wonder, at what point in the approval did somebody sign off on something that maybe was a problem?
4: Yeah, I mean, we are a year into the tenants ourselves doing tons, like hundreds of hours of research, right. um, you know, trying to get documents FOIA'd um, because there's so many parties that could potentially be liable um, between the construction company, the architect, the developer, the, you know, the landlord, yeah. um, the management company. Um, the few things we know for sure, um, construction seems to have been halted at some point towards the end of the project, but before its completion. Because a lot of the construction, it literally looks like someone dropped tools one day and walked out. You know what I mean? Um, oh. Drywall, like half-finished. Um,
0: so the money ran faster.
4: out. Huh? Yeah, well, that's what we've heard. Um, yeah, yeah, we're exploring. We're, you know, we're going to need um, some legal help on that front, determining because our, Oh, sorry. Um, our, we don't have any ongoing litigation with tenants currently in the building. Um, okay. Some former tenants um, have retained one, but the t- the tenant union and the members are have absolutely no connection to ongoing litigation besides one, and that's a personal matter.
0: Okay, um, sure. And
4: so that's no longer been a reason for um, the town and the county and the state to like delay involvement. They had kind of been using that as their excuse um, because they were concerned about their own liability, and you know, I don't know how that doesn't compound their liability to, you know, do be hands-off in the middle of a public health crisis. Um, but that's the approach they took. Um, and so, um, I'm sorry. No, I kind of okay. lost my train of thought. What was it we were talking about um well, sorry. What was the original question? I'm well, so there were
0: a couple of different <laughs> levels going yeah. on. You know, one of them was that the, oh, the that the system was designed, and it's not that we don't right. have a system; It's that it's not working. And as you pursued every step along the way, things didn't move at all to give you any clarity or any relief, mm-hmm. and it just built up.
4: Yep, that's right. And um, yeah, yeah, we gave we engaged with the system in good faith multiple times. I mean, between multiple housing court cases, um, trying to appeal to the Board of Selectmen, the, the Putnam Board of Selectmen and the mayor, um, directly at board, of, at board of Selectmen meetings, um, constantly you know, trying communication with them, um, and it was just a total shutout. Um, and like we predicted uh, earlier last year, I said if you guys don't do something and intervene, this is going to be a mass displacement. Yeah. But the, at the time, the building had been full, full of 82 um, residential units full of tenants and a really nice community. And then as the landlord just completely let go of her responsibilities for maintaining the property and Conover Residential's um, responsibility to manage the property, um, they just, you know, and we can't, we're not in their minds. We don't know, you know, kind of what their approach to the full situation is behind doors. Um, sure. But they the, they just essentially stepped back. You know, they, they pulled the property manager um, back to, like, one day a week. Um, they, it's just, like, total neglect. And that's the way that landlords in Putnam and across the state operate. You know, they buy property in another town. They don't have to see it every day. They don't live there. Um, and then the people who do are left to rot inside of these houses or buildings. Um, and they are basically held hostage because we have no other choices. There's no other options. uh, And, like, maybe your best option is moving to another rented apartment with possibly all the same health problems that you would just have to deal with again there. So we decided, you know what, we've had enough. Like, we've watched our neighbors have to leave with no one caring, and these are our friends, these are our parents at school. No one cared that these people are totally displaced by one woman's refusal to take care of her property. Um, And, you know, frankly, our analysis as a tenant union is that this is the system working. This is, um, they want to shut tenants out. They don't want to set a precedent for tenants getting together and deciding to raise the standard of living that would require, you know, um, higher accountability on landlords or higher accountability on the municipality. Um, And so we're just trying to build our own uh, structure now, our own, um, organized tenant class um, across the state and will determine in our demand letter to management, we said, we're not going by the legal bare minimum standards and trying to enforce that, although they have also violated those legal rights. But we are—we have been dealing with this enough, and we are the ones who have lived here,
1: yeah.
4: that we are, <coughs> we are the ones um, able to democratically set our own standard of living, and you guys have to live up to that if you want our rent money. So that's where we, you know, we just put our foot down.
0: I just want to mention in case you're joining us here on the radio today, we're speaking with Katie Slininger from the Cargo Mills Tenant Union. And uh, I just want to mention that uh, the process you've started is something that you plugged into a national network where these things are happening across the country and people, right. you know, realize they're not the only ones. So maybe without losing us in a lot of details, could you talk <laughs> about your sense of there's, there's support around the country that people are figuring out how to do this and you're doing that right now?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, so we are in the process of affiliating with the Autonomous Tenants Union Network um, and they're a national one um, that's growing all the time um we have uh through that network we formed relationships with organizers um the ones off the top of my head that helped us out a lot were from the Los Angeles tenant union
3: uh-huh. and
4: some Brooklyn based Brooklyn New York based ones um like the Crown Heights tenant union um and organizers from there have a longer history of militant action and militant it sounds like a scary word to some people but that just means like dedication to really pushing for for um, change over time, so you're like not giving up the struggle and, and pushing and pushing until things really meet our you know our needs. Um, and so these people have gone on rent strike in the past, especially during COVID. There was a big wave, um, yeah, and was. in other uh, other states, don't actually have Connecticut's housing court system um, where you can withhold rent through the housing court. Um, so their only option is withholding it themselves. Um, so they have the practice of responding to threats of eviction um, or retaliatory evictions. And so a lot of their resources were how can you build your community support up to the point where if your landlord tries to, um, you know, kick you out when you're asking for very basic human rights, that people will show up and say, you know, not today and not tomorrow, and um, we'll keep showing up until you just drop this case and let them live here. Um, and they have had success with that. Um, and we have had success with that. Earlier last year, we, you know, you can face retaliatory um, non-renewal leases, but because we had a strong union, um, we, would sit, we would have representatives sit in meetings with management, with the tenants, um, and successfully got people's lease renewals, uh, re- renewed. Um, so there's all these possibilities of not just taking... Um, the way this social relationship um, currently exists, like we're trying to denaturalize it. Like, really sit and ask yourself, why do you have to pay rent to live? You know, why is our building half empty when I can look across town in Putnam and see um, an encampment where people are freezing to death because they don't have a home to live in? You know, like, this doesn't make sense in a, like according to any kind of human logic or... Um, human rights and we are we we take this very seriously we are like done watching people get led out of our town and like i said these are our neighbors that we care about and people say just find a different place to to move first of all where like if you can find an apartment listing i would love to see it second of all that's not a solution we can't tell people to pick up their life and move every year because we can't find a way to um have safe healthy homes for everyone
0: Well, I'm glad you're sharing this message with us, because a lot of people are looking for places to connect right now. Other programs, other guests have talked Mm -hmm. about lots of landlords will, they'll just wait till it's time to renew the lease, and then they'll terminate it at that point, and you don't even have to be in trouble. You don't have to be a bad tenant. They just decided to not renew, and that's Mm -hmm. another way to not have to go to court to have you evicted. Uh, that 's exactly. that was talked about last week, actually, just want to mention right, a website yeah. folks uh the cargill tenantsunion dot org is the main way to connect to these folks uh, Katie, let me ask you this now because we 're doing the show in early January well maybe mid January now that you 've done this, do you have any sense for the next month or so what would be the best outcome right now that you 're hoping for
4: yeah um that 's a good question um so you know, we have our demand layer that we've served to management, and that's pretty extensive. And, you know, I won't bore you with the details on that, but um, you know, structural things, et cetera. Sure. Um, but um, we are going to basically ramp up, you know, our press strategy, um, which includes reaching out to the community, like through this radio station, which is, you know, the most important for us, is reaching people in our direct vicinity, um, you know, to start building, you know, stronger networks and growing unions um and so we are also going to bring more tenants on for a February rent strike um because they already haven't met certain deadlines like releasing lead abatement plans um they've had 2 months you know and that's about that's plenty of time they've been approved since December um but our landlord doesn't want to pay for it so um that's where she just sits on lead abatement plans like she did last year um so that's the most immediate acute problem that we're trying to tackle is getting these lead abatement plans rolling Um, And so definitely look out for um, a public demonstration after February, after we bring on some more tenants. Um, But the other thing we're very excited about that is really meaningful to us is we've been building connections with local labor unions. Um, Just yesterday, AFSCME, which represents um, a lot of public education, like support staff, paras, custodians, Mm -hmm. um, and Uh, We have supported our local Putnam um, union custodians um, in a struggle they had with the Board of Ed recently. And in return, they released a statement yesterday of support of our rent strike, and I'd be happy to share that with you um, sometime. But it's a very big deal in a lot of ways. Um, It's historic in in a major way, which is tenant unions and labor unions have essentially – Have very rarely had a formal relationship, and CTTU's relationship with SCIU is one of those, Um, and that's historic in and of itself. Um, But um, the more we make these labor connections, the stronger the working class movement will be, um, because you know we show up for labor, labor shows up for us. Um, The same people who are in your union are struggling. Renting you know, affording rent, or dealing with their landlord,
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, and so we're just kind of trying to rebuild this working class that has been really decimated by covid by um, economic crashes and deregulation. you know we've all kind of seen the effects of that over the past decade, and there's a lot of work to do to kind of have us have these class our class as like a strong um, vehicle for for social
0: change and political change. Okay, Katie, that's a good note to end our conversation for this time, though. I, I appreciate your coming on today and the work you're doing behind the scenes. We'll check back with you maybe a month from now, give things some time to see where it goes and what kind of response you get. I'm going to give the website one more time, folks, so you can learn from this experience, because these things are happening in different parts of the state, uh, cargilltenantsunion.org. So, Katie, thanks again. I wish you good luck in the months ahead, and we'll be certainly staying in touch.
4: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay. Take care now. Be well. Bye. Okay. Our time has flown by once again on the home front. We're very happy to see you each week. We'll see you next time. If you want to get involved, use the email john at humanartsmedia.com. See you next time.